I'm Harry. I'm Nash. And this week, we're going all the way from the 30th of April to the 6th of May. Boom, I got it. Third yeah. take, baby. Oh, wow, oh, made yeah. it. Um, and if you haven't followed us on Instagram yet, check us out at BYWB underscore podcast. Uh, we got stuff there. It's good stuff. Yeah, great stuff. You can see what Photoshop tutorial or Lightroom tutorial or some sort of tutorial I've been diving into. Man, you said that last week. Did I? <laughs> yeah, you said that exact same thing. Well, okay. <laughs> I've been so busy on these tutorials, I haven't had time to think of original jokes. So but, yeah, fair quite call. clearly, I'm not an original <laughs> kind of guy. I've been like copying tutorials off YouTube. But the point is... The pics and the vids, they look They're cool. good. Still still follow us because it's it's fun. So what are you speaking about, Nash? This week, I'm diving in deep into something that I never thought I would find myself exploring because I had zero interest in whatsoever. Quote, unquote, I'm a stinky boy. This is... <laughs> Harry knows. <laughs> this is... This week, I'm exploring the release of Chanel Number no. 5 because on May 5th, 1921, this is the day that Coco Chanel, she launches her iconic perfume, Chanel Number no. 5. Right. Is she the owner of Chanel? You know what? The answer to that question is extremely interesting. It involves like sex and lies and stitching and sewing. Martinis? And Nazis. Ooh. It's it's really interesting. Wow, this so, is like a 1940s Bond film. Yeah, I'm excited. It's nuts. It's nuts. So what are you, what are you exploring? Well... Mine has less sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It has none of that, actually. It's kind of the opposite, isn't it? <laughs> it's completely opposite. Because <laughs> on the 4th of May, 1979, the very conservative Margaret Thatcher is sworn in as Great Britain's first ever female prime minister. The Iron Lady. The Iron Lady, who, to give you a little bit of an insight, was good mates with Ronald Reagan, also very conservative. So, mm. yeah. Well, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, we know what happens. We know what happens. We'll tell you what happens <laughs> right after this. But what the honourable member is saying is that he were rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what May 4th, 1979. This is the day that Margaret Thatcher is sworn in as Prime Minister. Of England. <laughs> you really lent into that prime minister there. Yeah. Very Aussie. Yeah, it, trying to. Did you watch the Simpsons episode recently where they come to Australia? <laughs> where they, where there's a koala? Oi, Mr. <laughs> prime Minister. The Dollary Do's episode. Yeah. yeah. I, have, I have seen that. Hmm. I have seen that episode. <laughs> um, now, Margaret Hilda Roberts, as she was formerly known before her marriage uh, in later in life, I guess. Uh, she was born in, <laughs> I guess marriage doesn't happen before life. But before you were born, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, she was born in Grantham in England in 1925. Yeah. And she was actually born to the mayor of Grantham, who was her father. Oh, right. Um, wow. So she started off already a bit in the politics side of things. Yeah, politics in her blood, ready to lead. Yeah, uh, not quite. <laughs> um, because she started off actually studying chemistry at Oxford. This is where she started before getting into politics. She started in chemistry and then only at university with her dad's conservative words in her ear. She yeah. started getting into politics a bit more and was on the student associations for the conservatives and that type of thing. That's really interesting that she has a scientific background, you know. Um, well, scientific and also law. So she studied yeah. chemistry uh, and then did a bit of things. I don't know, stuff. No one really cares about that because she wasn't prime minister yet. But then... Then she also studied to be a lawyer and qualified to be at the bar so she could be a barrister as well. 
Um, okay, what- so Margaret Thatcher, she is no slouch. Like, not only is she gone to one of the most prestigious universities ever, yeah, she's she was lawyer. like killing it. Yeah, she was doing quite well. Yeah, as a chemist and a lawyer. Okay. Yeah, so in 1959, is that's when she wins her first election. Um, and she's elected to the Tories party, which is the Conservative Party, for those that don't know. Um, and she is a member for Finchley in 1959. So Do we know where Finchley is? is that- um, it's in England. Uh, <laughs> right in between Scotland and France. Ah. So that's roughly the area that you'll find Finchley. Okay, okay. Um, but suffice to say, this is really the start of her political career. Okay, so at this point, she's what, in her early 30s where yep. she wins her first uh, election? So is she elected to the British Parliament? Is that what happens? Or she just becomes a local member? She just becomes a local okay. member. Um, yeah. And she works her way up the ranks, essentially, because her speeches are quite good. She's quite a motivational speaker. Um, until finally, in 1969, she becomes the shadow spokesperson for education. Because the Tories aren't in power, Labour's in power, so she's the shadow minister. Similar to, what's the guy who's shadow prime minister at the moment? Malcolm Turnbull? Nah, Brendan <laughs> Fraser. I don't know, what I can't remember his Brendan name. Brendan Fraser? <laughs> I've actually forgotten his name. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Can no. you please tell me? <laughs> if you have to ask. Bill Shorten. Bill Shorten. It's Bill Shorten. I was close Brendan to Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Oh, no. If you're an international listener, we've lost you by this point. Yeah, Brendan Fraser is an American actor. Essentially, it's not Brendan Fraser. (laughs) Anyway, in 1970s, the Tories, uh, they regain power and Margaret Thatcher becomes uh, the education secretary, right? So she's finally part of the cabinet. She's one of the big wigs. 1974, the Labour Party returns to power, which means Thatcher's party, the Tories, are no longer in power. She ends up being joint shadow chancellor before replacing Edward Health as the leader of the Conservative Party in February 1975. So she's worked her way up the rankings. She's now the shadow prime minister of the Tory party. Okay, cool. So going from that first election in her early 30s, she continues with the Tory party as the shadow education minister, then the education minister, then coming back as being a shadow chancellor, working her way up to being the shadow prime minister. Well, no, the opposition leader, I suppose. Yeah, opposition leader. Yeah. Um, And then what? So there comes time for an election and then boom, boom, boom. We're getting to our date in history because this is like, I guess our date in history is the midway point of the Margaret Thatcher story. Well, it's really at the beginning. But essentially in March 1979, Callaghan, who was the prime minister at the time for the Labour he was defeated by a vote of no confidence. And on May 3rd, a general election... Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's huge. What happened? Why did he have a no confidence vote? I don't know. He just messed up. Probably. <laughs> what, you want me to know everything about English politics? Heck, I don't even know anything about Australian politics. No, I learned English politics. This is about Margaret Thatcher. Brendan Fraser. Not, not, not about Callahan, okay? So I don't give crap. About him. Okay, let's focus on the lady. We're focusing it's on the Iron Lady. The Lady of the Hour. Right. So on the 3rd of May, after the election, we get the result that Thatcher's conservatives, they're the majority, they win the election, which means Thatcher, as the leader, the next day, on the 4th of May, our date in history, Mm. Margaret Thatcher is sworn in as the Prime Minister of Britain. And what does she do straight away? Party! Nope, she dismantles socialist ideology. Nice. (laughs) Now That's what I'd do. (laughs) I mean, you and Reagan. Um, So what did she actually do as Prime Minister? 
a lot. Uh, I think she did a lot to she piss did. people off, but also so to much. win people over as well. Now, Britain was in a time, and I think this has to do with Callum, Callahan's dismissal. They were in a time where their economy was not going great at all. They yeah. were in a very poor state of affairs. And I think that had a lot to do with the no confidence vote. Yeah. So I actually do know a little bit about that in the uh-huh. end. Um, so the first thing she does as someone that's very keen on the economy going well is she sells off uh, a lot of public housing to tenants so they can be bought, uh, reduces spending on social services such as healthcare, housing, education, privatizing a whole lot of state-owned enterprises. So yeah. TV and radio, gas yeah. and electricity, the space program, airlines, just to name a couple. Yeah. Essentially what she did is she took all the socialist frameworks, stripped them out of England yeah. or made them really restricted. Mm. And that's how she you know, made her economy work and... She's a lover of those free markets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, a big issue that she had, and this, I guess this example is very, it paints a picture of Margaret Thatcher. Okay. So there was an issue with the National Union of Mine Workers in 1984, right? There was a huge strike because Margaret Thatcher wanted to close down 20 coal mines, right? Because they were unproductive. Because right. if you're not efficient in this world, you got to get out. Yeah. So the strike was essentially to stop the, the closing of the mines. The struggle went on for a year between the trade union and the government. You saw what happened with our bus strike a couple of months ago, right? It was going to be a day strike. Yeah. The government caved. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher went a year. Guess who caved? <laughs> I'm going to say the unions The caved. unions caved yeah. and not a single concession was won for them. Wow. Margaret Thatcher closed the mines. Wow. She really was the Iron Lady. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. So the, well, the, the miners... One thing that, that we did get out of that, which was amazing... Billy Elliot musical. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Um, So essentially, she refuses to meet their demands. The miners go back to work and she closed down. She closed down the mines that weren't effective. Um, She eliminated a whole bunch of government regulations and subsidies to businesses to help with that free flow of money. Yeah. Um, Increased unemployment by a lot. And this was a really big problem. because she increased unemployment. Well, she was shutting down businesses that weren't uh, producing money. Right, that's not good. No, it wasn't good. And it nearly lost her the election because there was an election, I think, in in 1983. And what will guarantee you an election? You've got an assassination, which happened with Ronald (laughs) Reagan, where he was nearly assassinated, won the election in a landslide. Yeah. A war. A war will help. Yeah. And this war, I'm sure you've never heard of. It's the Falkland Island War between Britain no, and I have. Argentina. I have, Argentina. You've heard yeah, of it? Yeah, I have heard How of it. have yeah. you heard about this? Because it's the most like unlikely <laughs> combatants ever. Yeah. Great Britain and Argentina. Why the hell would they go to war? Well, it was over this island and uh, Britain wanted to retain control of, yeah. of the Falkland Island. And in this war, there was a lot of support by Britain to keep the island. Yeah. So all of the people that weren't going to vote for Thatcher because of unemployment and all these other issues, they were like, you know what? She kept the island. She actually wins one of the biggest victories. I think it was since 1827. Yeah, yeah. In To get to her second term, yeah. right? This was the lady that was going to lose the election. Yeah, so, a massive turnaround. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. Um, Thanks, Argentina. Yeah, good job, Argentina, <laughs> on that one. She also hated communism, as I'm sure you can guess. And that's actually how she got her nickname, the Iron Lady, because a Soviet journalist actually nicknamed mm. her that, uh, speaking about her uncompromising politics and leadership style, which, of course, we've seen in <laughs> pretty much take any example from the last couple yeah. of minutes. Yeah. Pretty fair that her nickname was the Iron Lady. Definitely. So this was Margaret Thatcher. She was the first female prime minister and she won three terms in office. But yeah, the, huge. The 1987 election was a sign that 
things were not going so well for Margaret Thatcher because people were starting to turn against her. This is because of her view towards the the, the, the rest of Europe, the European Union, and this thing called the poll tax, the which poll was tax. essentially a flat rate per capita tax on every adult, which means in English non-commerce terms, a tax on everyone. Okay. And Why did she want to do that? I guess to raise revenue. Uh, raise revenue because she's that's, a conservative? No, that's... Well, I mean, that, I mean, everybody wants to raise revenue, but you'd think a conservative would not want to be taxing people. You know, that's not a very conservative thing to do. Well, That seems strange. No wonder she was losing the support of her base. Yeah, well, in November 1990, she actually failed to receive a majority in the Conservative Party's annual vote yeah. for selection of leader. So she withdrew her nomination on the 28th of November, 1989, after 10 years in office, winning three elections and changing essentially what Britain looks like completely. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, resigns as Prime Minister. Big. It's a really big deal. Um, Okay, cool. So Margaret Thatcher, huge achievement. First ever female Prime Minister um, of the the UK. Yeah, of the UK. So there was other... Other women before her? You bet your bottom dollar there was. Mm. 1960, we see our first female prime minister, which is Siramabo Bandaranaki. I probably pronounced it wrong, but she was the prime minister of Sri Lanka uh, from 1960 to 1965, then 1970 to 1977, then 1994 to 2000. She was prime minister for a lot in completely different eras as well yeah um, so she's the first sounds like her work was never done <laughs> yeah seriously all the way up to 2000 which yeah. is pretty recent that's huge um the second one was the prime minister of india who is um indara gandhi oh yes not yeah. mahatma's wife but no, actually the daughter of the first prime minister Jawaharlal nehura so was she related india. to mahatma gandhi at all no no she okay. wasn't but uh she was the second longest serving Indian prime minister after her father. Yeah, which right. Which is quite, quite cool. But and then she, she made a sticky end, didn't she? Yeah, she was assassinated in October yeah. 1984, um, which is actually a similal fate to Gandhi, I guess. So maybe that's the only way they're related. Yeah. <laughs> and the name. <laughs> the third one was actually Golda Meir of Israel. Um, she became prime minister in on the 17th of March, 1969, all the way through to the 3rd of January, 1974. Didn't she get into a war pretty quickly after becoming prime minister? Yeah. Like, like almost I mean, straight away. Israel has quite a few wars. So yeah. if you're becoming a prime minister, chances are you're going to have a war with you <laughs> relatively soon after. That's true. Um, now, the fourth one is a bit of an iffy one because she didn't actually win an election, um, but also she was the head of state and the head of government. And this is Isabel Martinez de Peron, whose husband was the prime minister, oh, sorry, the president of Argentina. Okay. And in 1974, she actually became the president herself. Wow. So I okay. don't know if we count her because she wasn't prime minister. She was president. Different, different thing. Uh, well, still. Still take I'd it. Say, I'd still say it's, if you're like a, if you're the administrator of a state, you, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, exactly. And the fifth one was Margaret Thatcher in 1979. Yeah, wow. So there okay. you go. That's the top five. Of course, we had our first one in, in 2010, yeah. Julia Gillard. She wasn't and, elected either. Well, yeah, I guess she wasn't no. either. Um, and America actually had oh oh no wait they they butchered that election oh no yeah wow jeez oh, sad day for everyone but speaking of sad days sad day that I didn't know what a Coco Chanel number no. five was what what is this fragrance tell me more about it I will right after this.
You know, I'm really glad we do this podcast. Um, not what? to get too sentimental, but... Um, yeah, that was really sentimental. Felt uh, all of your feelings just there. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I'm glad because each week we're forced to look back at the moments that, that shaped our modern world, right? Because, I mean, otherwise... I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty arrogant. I often think that I know everything. I'm not. But, but, yeah, uh, I, I think I know. That's fine. That's fine. I'll take it. Uh, but, you know, but by forcing ourselves to dive in each week... Uh, we expose ourselves to perspectives and experiences, sometimes whole new realms of experience that we'd otherwise never encounter. Very true. You know? So I, I'm not a fashionable person. No. You pretty much wear black on black every single day. I do. So I mean, I, I think, mean, I'm not one to talk either. I wear only things that have holes in them. I think of clothes the same way I think of brushing my teeth. You know, it's, it's a real hassle. It's <laughs> something that I'd rather not have to do or deal with, but... You know, I have to. And if you don't do it, it'll cost you a lot of money. Yeah, and I'll do the bare minimum, okay? That's why I rotate seven different shirts over the same pair of pants every week. That's why my teeth aren't terrible, but... But they're fine. You don't need crowns or anything like that. I don't like need that. crowns or nothing like that, right? So uh, as an unfashionable person, I had, of course, heard... Of course, I'd heard of Chanel. Yeah. But I took zero interest. Everyone's heard of Chanel. Yeah. It's got a big I, store. It's pretty hard to grow up in Australia in the 90s and, and to at least not have heard of it. You know, it's pretty yeah. hard. So what's your understanding of Chanel? It's a perfume brand. Chanel's a perfume brand? Yeah. Just perfume? Yeah. That's it? Yeah. Okay. Am I right? Obviously. You're partially right. You yeah. get partial, partial credit. I'll take that. That's you get partial be... ownership of the correct answer. The same way that... Chanel gets partial ownership. Anyway, so Chanel is a is a fashion brand. It's a high end fashion brand. It's well, not they just make perfume. Clothes? Oh my god! <laughs> Do they actually? Are you serious? No, yes, no, I, I thought mean, I yes. didn't know anything. I thought they just made the perfumes. No, no, Chanel is a high end fashion brand. It's super expensive. Uh. It's it's valued at over seven point eight billion dollars. It's a, it's an empire. So the the most iconic designs that it's known for. Uh, the little black dress, the Chanel suit, and of course, Chanel number no. five, which is probably what you're most right. familiar so with. So it's like Louis Vuitton. Yes. Or <laughs> it's like <laughs> Louis Vuitton. Isn't it? Or maybe you better know this brand as Channel. Yeah. <laughs> For many years, you I know did. the Channel little black dress? No. <laughs> I still don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Anyway, tell me a bit about <laughs> Chanel number no. five. So, all that success, it's pretty cool, you know, right now to see the result. To see the empire where you are today, but it's kind of meaningless without understanding the history of the company's founder, Coco Chanel. She was an orphan, an innovator, a fashion icon, and a Nazi spy. What? Yeah. So we come to 1920. Coco Chanel is 37 years old, right? And she is killing it. She's had a series of successful boutiques open up in Paris, in Deauville, in Bizarritz, I can't pronounce any of those names. One, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, having multiple shop fronts <laughs> is one thing, but being a true innovator that flips culture on its head is another thing. So the state of women's fashion at the turn of the 20th century, it was characterized by heavy, uncomfortable fabric, lace, padding. Uh, it was very corsets. uncomfortable Ugh. and restrictive. Yes, corsets. So corsets along with like petticoats and f silk underslips. They were all designed to flatten the stomach and contort the body into this desirable but unnatural 
S-curve, right? Yeah, it just sounds unpleasant. Really unpleasant. So Coco Chanel, she sought to change all of that and provide comfort and, I guess, elegance in her clothing. So in 1910, Chanel opened up her own millinery boutique, which, do you know what millinery is? Yeah, uh, it's actually a type of French toad. Yeah, um, that, that you wear on your head. Because uh, it's a hat, you know, so millinery. Okay, so it's, it's not women's hats. Yeah. Okay, it's women's hats. So, <laughs> um, so she later opens a full boutique in 1913, right? So her designs are characterized by simplicity and elegance. It's kind of minimalist, really, in its approach. And this is a stark contrast to the elaborate frills and opulence of previous garments. Yeah, so it's nice, nice and tight. Well, not so much. The previous stuff was tight. This stuff... Is, is allowing women to move and have mobility. Well, I mean tight in the sense of like, that's a tight fashion, you know what I mean? Like cool fashion. Tight. Yeah, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool, maybe. <laughs> um, I've never heard of that before. Right, so it's a new form of fashion though. Yeah, it's a new form of fashion. So during World War One, there was a fabric shortage, especially in France, right? She so, must be loving this. Sorry? She must be loving it if her designs are all you know, less fabric. Well, exactly. So one of the ways that she was able to produce her designs, despite the fabric shortage, was by using fabrics that weren't commonly thought of as being high quality or being able to use for high fashion. So there's this fabric called jersey, and it's like this cotton knit, which was typically reserved for men's undergarments, right? So instead of using it for underpants, she used it for her lightweight, breathable designs, that you know flattered the natural figure of a woman rather than like sort of contorting her into a you know an S curve. Yeah. There's obviously backlash from the fashion community when they see this. Yeah, I was going to say surely people would hate the fact that she's being she's being quite risqué. She's using uh men's underpants material to dress women of high society, right? <laughs> so they're literally wearing underpants. That's yeah, amazing. so they, <laughs> So the critics were like, "What is what is this all about here?" Huh? And um but the people, the public, they bought into it. Yeah, we well, loved it. It's movable, it's lightweight, makes you look freaking fresh. Exactly, exactly. Now, she makes a name for herself as being an innovator, a huge icon in fashion, right? Right. In the early 20th century. Now, I would recommend going and looking this up online. I can't really do justice to describe the, um, the fashion, right? No, uh, that's because also you have no understanding of it. I have no understanding of it. It's like, so, uh, coat. Uh, good. <laughs> uh, Red coat. <laughs> Red yeah. coat with button. I like that one. I don't know why. <laughs> now, this is made all the more remarkable when you consider that Coco Chanel was actually abandoned at the age of 12 and sent to live in an orphanage as well. At the age of 12? Surely by that point she could have just lived on the street by herself. Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Get out Harshest of it. Just critique of an orphan <laughs> ever. Oh, come on. You're old enough to fend for yourself. Get out there. Start making hats. Well, that's, I mean, that's what she, she did essentially. She made clothes and she did a bloody good job of it. She did. She was very entrepreneurial and took it upon herself to survive. Now, it's 1920, like I said at yeah. the beginning. 1920, yeah. we know who Chanel is. She's this icon. She's killed it, right? It's 1920. Metaphorically and- k- killed it, just to clarify. <laughs> the film may be later in this story. Yeah, right here yeah. about actual killings. <laughs> so it's 1920, and the perfume slash fragrance industry is in a similar state of affairs as women's fashion, right? It's stale, 
and it's ripe for disruption. I like all of the words you just used. Stale. And ripe. Ripe. Yeah, that's me. So women's fragrances were typically based off a single flower. You know what I mean? So like yeah. you smell like a rose or you smell like a cauliflower. Lily. Yeah, cauliflower. Right. Right? They weren't sort of amalgamations of different scents. And also the bottles were kind of similar to those big dresses that we were speaking about before, yeah. big and frilly and ornate. Yeah. So Chanel goes on holiday to the south of France, right? And she meets a guy called Ernest Beau, right? Right. Now, this dude is a master of all things olfactory. Oh, what? Smelling. Right. Yeah, right. The so olfactory system is our sense of smell. You know how like something you're like, oh, smell this. What does it smell like? He'd be able to be like, yeah, that's three tablespoons of sugar, a pinch of cinnamon and is that origino? <laughs> and he just like he'd smash it. Yeah, he would smash it. He's like, he's just, this guy's incredible, right? So he lived in Greece and he used to work for the Russian czars. Okay, well, you got to be good. Making Otherwise, perfume for them. They kill so you. he was great. So Chanel challenges him to create, quote, a woman's perfume with a woman's scent, right? Okay. Now it turns out that a woman's scent, according to Chanel, <laughs> is a combination of over 80 ingredients, including jasmine, mayrose, sandalwood, orange blossom, Brazilian tonka beans, and aldehydes. Oh, wow. Sign me up. How yeah. do I get this scent? We just go to the shop. Right, okay. Chanel cool. number five. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy to do. Um, <laughs> if we fast forward now, a number of months, Ernest, he presents then 10 samples to Chanel. Okay. The samples. I understand now. They're numbered 1 to 5 and 20 to 24. What? I know. You were not what you're expecting. No, I was expecting <laughs> one to ten, she chooses Chanel number five, not one to five and then twenty to twenty-four. Yeah, I know. But that's what happens. And she chooses sample number five. So he can smell, he just can't count. <laughs> well, you know, you can't have it all, I'm afraid. Right. Unfortunately. So she chooses a scent that encapsulates the sense scent of a woman. Exactly. Now there's this mythology that surrounds the number five, right? From symbols in her childhood growing up in that orphanage to it just being a lucky number. And again, to the fact that Coco would release her latest designs each year on May 5, the fifth day of the fifth month of the year. Right. Right? So this takes us to our day in history. There we go. May 5, 1921. Coco launches Chanel number 5. Now, this obviously worked quite well for her because if I know what Chanel number 5 is, it must have sold quite a bit. It sold like gangbusters. It sold like pancakes. Hot cakes, I think. Hot cakes. Hot pancakes. Hot pancakes with <laughs> maple syrup. It's a hit, right? So it's different from its competitors, not only in its scent, but in its presentation. It's the bottle of Chanel Number no. 5. What does it look like? Nice. Nice. It's Expensive. simple. It's clean. There's like the lines of a flask. It's elegant. It's just a square, right? Even the name number five distinguishes it from all that came before. You know, uh, people, they flock to the scent. It's a hit amongst the upper class, the elite. And, it, you know, it just goes up and up from there. So social and cultural impact is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. It's pretty huge. I mean, it's cool to have Andy Warhol photograph your perfume in the 60s, to be endorsed by Marilyn Monroe, to be, you know, featured at the Super Bowl. That's, ah, that's amazing. That's I great. Mean, that's, yeah, that's great. She, at, she wins. Yeah, it's pretty big impact. But at the end of the day, this is a business, right? Right. So you asked me at the beginning of the show, 
Did she own Chanel? Right. So in 1924, Coco Chanel enters a partnership with these guys called the Werthemir brothers, right? Right. Pierre and Paul. They've been in the perfume business for almost a decade. Now, together, the three of them create Parfums Chanel, right? Okay. Perfumes for Chanel. I don't know much French, but but I know that. Very good. I can't verify that, but I assume it's fine. I think it's fine. So they financed the operation. The okay. Wethermere brothers. And they took a 70% cut. Whew. They gave 20% to their distribution partner and Chanel licensed her name to the brand and removed herself from operations for 10%, right? Now, I mean, still. Think about it. Global company, 10%. That's, that's a lot yeah, of money. Yeah, that's a decent right? amount of money for not doing particularly much. Yeah. Well, now, Coco wasn't too happy about this. Okay. And she spent the better part of 20 years fighting for control over the company once again. And in some ways, fair enough. By the mid-40s, it was raking in $9 million in worldwide sales every year. She now, can't be upset with $900,000 a year. That's a decent salary. Well, think about it this way. Like, that was in 1940s, $9 million. Yeah, so, like, true. it would have been close to $200 million now. Right. Yeah, decent a amount, huge of, amount of money. Decent amount. Now, let's talk a bit about money. Coco Chanel didn't always have money. She was an no, orphan, right? At the age of 12. So how did she have the money to start some of her businesses? Well, she was known to have had affairs with powerful men throughout her life, right? Very smart. Sometimes, more than one at a time. You know, sometimes okay. play them off each other. Sometimes one, a lover, will introduce you to another. This guy called... Boy Capel. He was actually like a British captain, right? He was one of her first lovers and he financed that millinery store we spoke wow. about earlier, right? In 1910. Now, one of Coco Chanel's lovers yeah. throughout her life, he was a Nazi spy. Oh, okay. His name was Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. Sounds a lot like Marta Hari, who, of course, was a, a spy for both France and then Germany. And, the Nazis, yeah. and then. Ended up getting herself killed. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Coco Chanel played it really well. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, she, uh, her boyfriend, right, essentially, her boyfriend during the 1940s in Paris, in like Nazi-occupied Paris, was this guy, Baron <laughs> Hans Gunther von Dinklage. He was von sent Dinklage. by the SS to Paris uh, to be the media office attaché in Paris for the SS. Okay. And he's, they, they lived together in the Ritz Hotel in Paris. Wow, that's nice. Well, it was very fancy if you were, you know, an elite, you know, SS dude and you're a socialite, blah, blah, blah. So in the midst of World War II, the Nazis say Jews aren't allowed to own anything, right? They have have their businesses stripped away from them, among other horrible things. Yeah. Right? Now, the Werthmere brothers were Jewish. And in Uh 1940, they fled to the United States. So Coco Chanel took this opportunity to try and seize back Perform Chanel Ooh. by claiming her Aryan status and saying, look, these Jews have left the company. Um, it's just sitting there. I guess I own it now, right? Uh, no, I don't like her anymore. Yeah. And his thing, the Wethmeers anticipated this and they transferred ownership of the company to their Christian friend, right? <laughs> so she couldn't get it. And then at Who'd the end winked? of the war, they gave it back to her. Now, it goes deeper, man. This Nazi connection goes deeper. Coco Chanel had like an official Nazi code number, right? Really? As a spy. 008? Uh, 006? F7124. Oh, That's a code n- number. not as cool. And her code name <laughs> was Westminster. Okay. And he guesses why? 
because of her connection to Winston Churchill. Right. Yeah, she was actually close personal friends with Winston Churchill. Churchill. And it goes deeper. She actually went to Berlin and was briefed on a plan by the chief of Nazi SS intelligence to send a letter to Winston Churchill to negotiate an early end to the war. Wow. She personally met and was friends with the chief of Nazi SS intelligence, General Walter Scholdenberg, right? The dude was convicted at the Nuremberg Military Tribunal. He was released because of liver cancer, and Chanel ultimately paid for his treatment and eventual funeral. She was wow. like a huge Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> like, so are you going to buy Chanel anymore or probably not? Well, here's the thing. Here's the moral dilemma. I feel like the Wethmeers would have felt the very same way because they knew about all this morally questionable activity that Chanel was involved in during the 40s when they came back and took ownership of the company. But they eventually settled the dispute between Coco and themselves by saying, we'll just kind of shove this on the table here because the market value and the potential of this empire was was so large. Yeah, the ends, forgetting about the means. (laughs) Yeah, so Chanel now is this Global empire, $7.8 billion. Yeah, wow. And I don't know, man. Like, Give that up for a bit of Nazi gold. In fairness, in fairness, Coco Chanel had nothing to do with the running of the company during the 40s. Yeah. So I guess you can sort of rest easy, you know. In buying uh, your Chanel. In buying you your can Chanel a- now. Afford it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's okay because essentially she only had 10% of the company. At the end of the day, so it actually came down from that with her, her settlement. Oh, really? They talked it down to two percent. Holy cow! But two percent of like a multi-billion-dollar company. Yeah, but huge. in terms of like feeling bad about what happened in the forties. Yeah. Oh, she also copped all of the wartime profits as well, oh. which was like twenty-five million. So okay, pretty big. So, so, so she did 40s. just fine. Don't yeah. feel bad for Chanel. No, I don't feel bad for her. I just yeah. feel bad for people buying Chanel. No, I don't feel bad for them. They've got the money to buy Chanel. Why would I feel bad? And for they them smell nice at so. all. Yeah, eighty different fragrances in mm, one. Beautiful. There you go. So I mean, I I just couldn't believe that. Yeah, wow. I just couldn't believe that. It's it's stranger an, than fiction. An orphan who became uh, a fashion icon, a fashion icon who then became a Nazi spy who only owned two percent of her own company. Yeah, insane. insane. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, I guess that takes us to the end of a huge week of females in history. Yeah, and if you want to check out some of the uh, designs and the stuff we were speaking about in the show this week, head to the Instagram. We'll be posting all that. We might even show you a pair of jeans with not one, not two, but three different pockets. Wow. Huge. I'm sold. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, that does bring us to the end of another week in history. So join us back here next week as we take you to a time before you were born. (laughs) 